uh, Judges chapter 16, and as we come now to God's word, let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your word and your promise that it is the sword of your spirit. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would do its work among us. We pray that our hearts and our minds would not be distracted, but would be open to what it is that you have to say to us, that we would not simply gain more information, but we would experience your empowering spiritual presence speaking to us, transforming us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges chapter 16, friends, and uh, beginning at verse 1. Samson went to Gaza. And there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Uh, the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dry, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, 
for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. They said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, Please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's, And upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him with Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Mano, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. You probably uh, realize this as uh, people who I suppose mostly grew up in America, but the, the Hollywood machine has passed out the movie stories all around the world, of course, uh, and particularly uh, cowboy stories have made their way to the furthest corners of the earth. It's quite remarkable. I remember growing up watching cowboy stories of my father and John Wayne, of course, I remember watching that. And then... In later years, they took a little bit of a twist, didn't they, to what were called the spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood. With you know, it moved from true grit to a few for a fistful of dollars and a few dollars more, or whatever they were called. And these cowboy stories represent a certain kind of rugged individualism. 
It's an interesting phenomenon in our culture, isn't it? Because obviously we need heroes, perhaps especially today. We need people who will stand up for the truth and, and, and be strong. And yet on the other hand, there's a kind of uh, rugged individualism that goes too far and becomes merely violence, selfishness. And here in this story, we don't have a cowboy culture as such, with all its complexities and history, of course, uh, in, in, the West, uh, in the Western states of America and all the rest. But what we do have is a sort of rugged individualism that has become malevolent. I suppose you could call it a Samson culture. And we have some of that in our day too, don't we? We worship, as it were, the physical prowess of the muscular who will ride off into the sunset after he has ridden into the town and slain all the enemies. Strength must be strong. And yet here, Samson, with all his strength, and as the consummate individual, who doesn't have a group of people with him but is riding into Gaza to do battle on his own, is nonetheless a complete failure in so many ways. And so in this story we have the central paradox of Christian discipleship, which is the strength of weakness. And as we go through this story together, I think we'll see how that leads us to the right kind of heroic action for Jesus. What well, he's weak in some bad ways, isn't he? And there are three of them we're going to look at, and then we'll uh, end up, as I say, with the strength of weakness that is the central paradox of Christian discipleship. The first way that he's uh, weak in a, in a, a malevolent way, uh, a bad way, uh, you can see in the first three verses of the chapter, I'm just going to call this moral weakness. Moral weakness first. And it is quite astonishing, isn't it? I mean, look at verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. There's no, there's no hesitation, there's no reservation, there's no lengthy description. He goes to Gaza, there's a prostitute, he sleeps with her. Well, of course. He's become utterly morally weak. It reminds me of the old quip from Oscar Wilde. He used to say that he could resist everything except temptation. There's a bit of temptation for Samson and he can't resist her. There's a prostitute, he's going to go into her. We think of sin as a plaything because it gives us pleasure. But what we don't understand is that Sin in a biblical theology is a bit more like an addictive substance. Uh, read through Romans chapter 1 afterwards, and you'll see how there's a spiral of increasing decay that comes. So a thought, reap a deed. So a deed, reap a habit. 
Sow a habit, reap a destiny. It's no plaything. Samson's got to the point now where he just sees a prostitute and of course he sleeps with her. Why not? He's become utterly morally weak. He's still physically strong, of course. It's quite amazing, isn't it? He wakes up at midnight. He, gets, uh, he takes hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts. He pulls them up, bar and all. He puts them on his shoulders and carries them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. He's physically strong. He's morally weak. He has elephantine, elephantine strength, but he is morally a jellyfish. Well, perhaps you do have temptations to go to a gentleman's club. You drive around Chicago and you, just on the highways, they're advertised everywhere. What does it matter? Well, we're leading to what it matters and how it affected Samson and thousands of other people. It matters. Well, the story of Matthew Perry that has been making news recently, the friend's celebrity who died in circumstances that no one seems to quite understand. But if you read his, bio, his, his autobiography, which I have not read, but if you read it, what I'm told is it's just filled with the most salacious details of his very sad addiction to this and that and the other. Sin grabs hold of you. It's sweet at first. Bitter at the end. It's not just about gentlemen's clubs and prostitution. It can be that, but perhaps you don't have a temptation to go to a prostitution, uh, prostitute, but you do have a temptation to prostitute your gifts. And rather than give them in service to Jesus in the local church and children's ministries or youth ministries, you spend all your time just making more and more money. God's given you gifts for a purpose. I'm not saying that making money isn't a good thing to do too. I'm just saying that the you, Lord can use people who make money, of course. But you've got to give your gifts to the Lord and not prostitute them for yourself. It can be in the areas of scholarship. And I know that can seem a little obscure to those of us who haven't spent a lot of time in academic circles. But the fundamental reality of our day is that all the decay we see in Western society is rooted in a decay in the universities. That's where it comes from. So even if this isn't you, it's still important. You cannot, my friend, if you're a scholar, decide today to delay a public commitment to Christ so that you might advance and get tenure or whatever it is, your university position, and then expect in a few years' time that you'll still have a commitment to Christ. You will not. Over and over and over again, you see people compromise at the beginning, hoping that they'll be faithful at the end. What a mistake. Sin will come to its fruition. He's morally weak. First, moral weakness. Second, the second way uh, term I've got for it in the middle section, and I won't go through it all in detail, of course, 
But from verse 4, really, to verse 22 or so, there's this whole section with Delilah, and I call this personal weakness. So because he's now morally weak, he then becomes personally weak. He, 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 before he's physically blinded at the end, he's personally blind. He can't see. It's, it's quite the most extraordinary thing. With Delilah, surely... He would have picked up what was going on. You know, Samson, the Philistines are upon you again and again and again. Surely he must have realized that she was out to get him. But no, he's blinded to it all. He's personally weak. How is that possible? Was he big muscles, small brain? It could be that Delilah is playing with him a sort of lover's game. I think that's probably partly what's going on. You can imagine them sort of playing together with his physical strength and her seducing him and then playing a kind of game in bed. That's probably what's happening. But still, it's astonishing blindness. He is so personally weak. Uh, Delilah, of course, has been bribed by the five lords of the Philistines. It's a huge amount of money, 1,100 pieces of silver. This is a big deal. Her name uh, may mean something like flirtatious. So this could have been her name, Delilah, or it could be uh, the the Bible, uh, the author's description of what her character was, a flirt. Don't you love me? She was a Delilah. Flirtatious. Presumably, uh, he never actually saw the men in hiding. They were in some closet in the back room or something like that. And then at the end, in a moment of astonishing pathos, she lulls him to sleep on her lap like a mother with a child and betrays him. Moral weakness leads to personal weakness. You cannot expect to have a strong character if you don't have strong morals. How could you? How can you expect to see if you were already blinded yourself to the abuse that you're committing on prostitutes? The Australian uh, missionary, uh, Paul White, uh, told a lot of parables about uh, using animals as, as, as images and uh, uh, storytelling techniques about spiritual principles. And one was about how a little leopard becomes a big leopard. So you take a little leopard home as a pet, uh, and, but it will grow. A little sin will become a big sin. And in the end, blind you. Now, having said all that, it's so easy, isn't it, for us as we think of Samson to be firm with his sin in the way that we tend to be firm with other people's sins rather than with our own. And it's so important, isn't it, that we're realistic with our own tendencies and temptations and sins. Uh, For some here, it may well be women is our temptation. Uh, For others, it may well be men. But it doesn't have to be in the sexual area. For some, it may be complaining. 
What will a little complaining do? How will that damage the church? Big time. Big time it will damage the church. For others it may be gossip. Don't you love me? Won't you tell me that little bit of secret information, the secret gossip? For others, it may be a fear of man, not being able to stand up for what is true at work or at home. For some, it may be a worship of career over Christ. Some, it may be the fear of the future. We're people of faith, but we're no longer people of hope. We cannot see how God will bring good to the future. We, we're frightened of the future. For some, it may be living in the past. We can't believe that there are glory days ahead. We could go on with the list. It could be all sorts of things. But what is your Delilah that whispers to you, don't you love me? Moral weakness, personal weakness that then led to his physical weakness. And this, of course, runs from verse 23 to the end of the chapter, though the turning point is really verse 22. I hope you spotted that when we read it out. Verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Surely they would have noticed this. Samson had already indicated his actual understanding that it wasn't really the hair that mattered. It was his Nazarite commitment to God of which the hair was an expression. But surely they would have noticed that the hair of his head was growing and become concerned about that. But perhaps they thought that his vow had been severed and so it didn't matter how long his hair got, whether he had a mullet or not, who cared? But the author puts it there to say that Something good is going to happen out of all this chaos and mess. The hair of his head is beginning to grow. Perhaps, as it were, the hair of your head is beginning to grow again. You're back in church. There's a stirring of the spirit in your life. Aslan is on the move. The whole end of this story is memorably captured by Milton, the poet Milton, in his book, Samson Agonistes. Uh, but we, we don't need to dive into that. It's, it's beautifully described here, of course, in the text itself, in God's word itself. And despite all the mess, God brings out a redemption. He's in Gaza, which ironically is the scene of his previous victory and the scene of his previous prostitution to a prostitute. And probably the temple where they take him was where the prostitute came from. She was probably a temple prostitute from the god Dagon. He's led in like a criminal. We're told they're all merry, which is code for they're drunk. They're in high spirits. And they're worshipping Dagon, who it seems is probably the father of Baal, a more well-known god. 
Uh, Dagon used to be thought of as the fish god by the similarity for the name Dagon with the Hebrew word for fish. Nowadays, it seems most scholars think that Dagon was the god of crops and fertility. But either way, they were worshipping the pagan god and giving praise for their victory to Dagon. The construction of the temple we do know something about from archaeological digs and the rest and other descriptions. It probably was constructed something like this. The honored guests sat under the portico and Samson would have been out front where they could see and then the mob who were in high spirits or merry would have been on the roof, a bit like a stadium looking down with the honored guests underneath the overhanging roof. And they're praising Dagon for victory. And in the end, God will have none of it. When Christian leaders fail, the world sneers. But in the end, God will ensure his name is honored. There's actually another fantastic little rhyme here that they use. Probably what's going on, you remember uh, Samson had this gangster rap kind of thing that we saw last week uh, uh, with, with, with the jawbone of an ass, I've piled them in a mass, that kind of thing. And now they're turning it on him in verse uh, 24. They say, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And there's a rhythm and a rhyme to it in the Hebrew that is almost impossible to translate. But something like, our God has gave, given into our hand our enemy who has killed so many. The enemy and the many are kind of connected and there's a rhyme, rhythm to it. In other words, they're chanting at him. They're sneering at him. They're turning his verbal guns on him. And finally... As they praise God, God will have none of it. He, something in Samson stirs, and he cries out to God. Verse 28, O Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me just one more time. O God, help me. I think it's a desperate, passionate plea. He uses three different words for, the, for God in that one little prayer. Adonai, Yahweh, Elohim. Adonai, Yahweh, Elohim. Adonai, Yahweh, Elohim. Lord God, Jesus, Father, God, help me. Adonai, Yahweh, Elohim. And in his physical weakness, he once again discovers strength from God. The providence of God is beyond tracing, isn't it? How God weaves his providence into all these events. Milton, who wrote this amazing poem on this story called Samson Agonistes, himself was blind. And in another place, Milton says, they serve who also only stand and wait. Perhaps you're physically weak and you wonder what use you can be. They serve who also only stand and wait. But of course here, Samson didn't need patience. He needed to push. Push. 
And maybe that's what you need to do too, to push through the circumstance of your life, trusting in God's strength, not in your own. Of course, the irony is Samson achieves far more in his death than in his life. And by contrast, it reminds us of another death where the Lord did not cry out for vengeance on his enemies, but instead prayed, Father, forgive them. But in his death on the cross, the ultimate paradox of strength and weakness, his death did not kill so many, it saved so many. The strength of weakness. You say, what does that mean practically? Well, prayer, for instance, seems so weak to respond to a trouble or difficulty in your life by saying, I'm going to set aside half an hour to pray about it. The world would sneer at that. How ridiculous to pray about it. What difference can that possibly make? And yet, we're told the prayer of a righteous man is what? Powerful and effective. The prayer is in the weakness, that the power is in the weakness of the prayer. The strength of weakness. Preaching, the very act of preaching that we're all experiencing together this morning. Uh, Paul described it like this, that it's a strength of weakness, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, that is not with clever words, for I decided in nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, that is not with charismatic communication abilities, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of what? Power. Oh, there is power in the gospel, but it's a paradoxical power. It's the strength of weakness. For it's his power, not our power. It's the power of love, not the power of aggression and anger. It's not a Samson culture we want, but a savior culture, a Christian culture. Prayer, preaching, of course, living. The Apostle Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Well, that's power. Christ lives in me. What greater power could there be? But I, the egotistical, consummate individual, no longer lives. I have a different purpose now. I'm living for him, not for myself, not for my agenda, for his agenda, with his power, And his person in me, the strength of weakness. What could be weaker than the cross? What could be more powerful than the cross? I remember one time uh, listening to a, a preacher with a beautiful southern accent. And I won't in any way attempt to imitate his accent, but it had this beautiful lilt to it. It's one of these classic southern preachers. And their, their accents are so beautiful, I could listen to them forever. It's just perfect. And as he was preaching, he was talking about the strength of weakness. And he came to one of Jesus' parabolic statements. Unless a grain of wheat 
falls to the ground and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. That's the strength of weakness. For him, for his glory, and in his power. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do uh, rely upon you and your power. Uh, Perhaps, Lord, there are some here who need to cry out to you. Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh, Lord God, help. Perhaps we are stuck in some sort of addictive pattern of sin. And in this Western suburbs culture where everyone has to look so perfect, we dare not even name what it is. But in prayer, Lord, and in, before you, you know, would you use this moment to ask God for help? Adonai, Yahweh, Elohim, help. Cry out to him in the silence. Don't let it grow within you to become a great big leopard and end up blinding you and killing you. Ask for help. Cry out to him that he might save you. But then also, our Lord God, there is a need for us to be strong today. But give us moral strength. Strength of character. Humility. Fullness of your spirit that we might lead at school, at home, at work, in our own lives, resting on you and in your power that we no longer live, but you, Lord Jesus, live in us. For we pray it in his name. Amen.